The Office of Management and Budget is solving two long-standing challenges for the federal contracting workforce. All it took was the stroke of a pen. A new memo from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy establishes new training and certification requirements for civilian agency contracting officers. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me now with details about the first major change in eight years. All right, so what are the big challenges, I guess, untrained contracting officers, Jason? There are plenty of trained contracting officers. The big challenge has been the inconsistency in terms of between civilian and DOD. DOD had one set of standards, civilian had another. And Tom, that made it hard. So if I'm a, if I'm a contracting officer at the Commerce Department and I want to get a new job, it really limits me that I can only stay either A, within the Commerce Department, or B, potentially within the civilian sector, but I can't go to DOD, and then vice versa. You know, there's folks who spent their entire career with DOD, but then want to go work at Homeland Security Department for that mission or something. And there was not a lot of ability to move. And if you did move, you'd have to either A, do new training or take some sort of prove that you could do the work, even though you've been doing the work for 20, 30 years or however how, how long. So the new Federal Acquisition Certification in Contracting, or FACC Professional, and this is a memo that just came out uh, yesterday from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, says we're not we're going to do away with these two different standards. We're going to have one standard. It's going to be based on the NCMA, National Contract Management Association, and ANSI, which is, uh, Tom, the American National Standards Institute. And they have something called the ASD-1 2019. Now, if you're keeping score at home, and we do have a link to that on federalnewsnetwork.com, that will be the standard for all contracting officers across all the government. So that's problem number one solved. We have one standard. The second problem that they're solving, Tom, and this is really fascinating, did you know, and I'm not sure how many people did, contracting officers did not have to do any sort of certification or take any sort of exam to say, I am a contracting officer. They'd take classes, and once you pass those classes, you were checked off that box, but you never had to take a certification exam. Well, what FACC professional now is doing is creating that exam. They're saying you must not only take classes, but you must pass a professional exam. And I think this is going to really bring some important, Tom, if you will, professionalism to a set of requirements that people were already fairly professional, but now we can recognize it in a new way, maybe some more steam to the position because it will be standardized, independently administered assessment of those competencies. Right. And as new people come into this field, there's some kind of objective star for them to be able to work towards. And that way, you know, you have consistency, as you pointed out earlier. Exactly. I think that consistency is what's been missing over the last, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Not because everyone was doing things differently, but, you know, you, you, it just happens over time. You have these kind of one-offs where, well, Tom took these courses and I took those courses. And yes, we both took similar courses, but we're not the same. Now, how standard is all of this training requirement from agency to agency? Did OFPP leave agencies with some say or some discretion over what their particular 1102s have to know? They did. And I think this is the other piece to this memo that's really important. Every contracting officer starting on February 1st, that's when the FACC professional goes into effect, will have to take at least four courses. Now, let me back up, Tom, and say if you already are a contracting officer at levels one, two, or three, you automatically become FACC professional certified. So you don't have to take new classes if you're already in the government. And, Tom, this only applies to civilian agencies, not DOD, so I want to make sure folks understand that as well. But if you're a new hire that comes on board after February 1st, you have 12 months to take four core courses of training. It's very, very straightforward. Foundational skills, pre-award, post-award, and award uh, training around contracting. 
Now, after you kind of get that certification, you pass your exam, that's where the flexibility that this memo and this new approach really is bringing in. Agencies are allowed to say, hey, we need folks to do more about buying cloud or cybersecurity or supply chain risk management, or we need data analytics. That's really important to us. So we can kind of drive that certification, that that requirement down to our contracting officers level. And what OFPP is saying is, we're trying to give them more flexibility to meet their mission needs, where their mission needs are, instead of having this one-size-fits-all approach, which, Tom, as we've heard over the years, it rarely works that, hey, everyone do the same thing because everyone's the same. We, we know that's just not true. Well, that's true because, you know, not maybe to the extent of the military side of the house, but lots of civilian agencies do buy hardware and manufacturing types of services as well as professional services, and they're not the same. And so there, there's a lot of specificity. So it sounds like the training is not just all about the FAR and how to do contracting in the abstract or in the academic sense, but also some market knowledge and industry understanding so that if you are buying something like software development versus replacement parts for armored cars, you would have those nuances as a contracting officer. I think that's exactly right because what has they've seen over time is, yes, there are certain basics everyone needs, but each agency, because of, again, as you pointed out, is, is so different in, in what they buy. Again, whether you're working at Homeland Security or Treasury or Commerce or Agriculture, you have to understand some of those changes that, that are are coming in. Now, uh, Tom, the one one thing I think that, that OFPP is also is trying to do here is – say, hey, we want to give you lots of broad, you know, six-lane highway, but stay within these guardrails. And I think that's why they went with this ANSI NCMA standard as well, because that gives you, okay, it gives you this idea of you got to know what the buyer wants, what the seller wants, what industry wants, and then it creates that mobility among all three of those areas. So you can, hey, I'm going to spend 10 years working for the government. I'm going to go to industry. I'm going to come back to the government or go over to DOD for, for part of my career. That's all built into this standards. And by the way, there is a pretty good ecosystem, correct, for offering this kind of education. The NCMA itself does, but a lot of the colleges locally and so on and Defense Acquisition University, I mean, there's a lot of places they can get the training under this memo. What OFPP does is and say, listen, we know the Federal Acquisition Institute provides a lot of these training opportunities. They also said, you know, we, we worked with others outside of, you know, within DOD, Chief Acquisition Officers Council, and, and others to really make sure we were hitting the right notes. Now, how they provide this training, how they get the continuous education credits, that is a lot of it is done by folks, as you said, like NCMA, as well as other professional associations and some private sector contractors. I'm sure the apparatus under Jerry McGinn over at George Mason is already gearing up. They probably already they probably already knew this was coming. They got the scoop before I did. All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost uh, 
Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL. Uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they ba- they basically were in d- direct care, and and I will say, you know, and on obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really, um, you know, we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know I'll take a look at it and see, see you know throw uh, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story, like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at Special Olympics no one's excluded 
you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yep. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics. It, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics in experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get, how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I'd mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out, uh, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.